Well, thanks, Mark and music team. I was just, as we were singing, realizing how the words really preach my sermon before I ever get up here to say a word. And I appreciate your effort to do that and speak those things. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks for last weekend. Uh, really enjoyed our family picnic together. Uh, we had such good weather, uh, such good fellowship. It was just a good old-fashioned good time. Uh, it kind of reminds me uh, of the old tradition of dinner on the ground, right, where people would get together like that. And I think it says a lot about our church family when that's a part of who we are. And I didn't think about this until we were out there enjoying our time together just to see people driving up and down Indiana to look into that front yard of this church to see that this is what we're about. And uh, I was grateful that, that that was what was demonstrated because it really is a true identity of the fellowship that we have within this body, and I'm deeply grateful. And I just want you to know that I love you. I love this church body. I am so grateful to be a part of this family. And it's times like those that I'm just reminded of what a blessing it is to uh, be together. And so thank you for that time. It's a highlight for me, uh, as you can probably tell. Um, One of the things that I wanted to uh, just encourage you in as we... um, have times like this and are reminded about the blessing of our fellowship is that as we enter into the fall, uh, there will be new people who show up here every Sunday. It's just a part of what happens during this time of year. There will be college students who are going to be coming here for school. There will be people who are moving to Lubbock who are looking for a church home. There will be people who just feel compelled to to start getting plugged into a local church. And uh, when we see those people, let me encourage you to invite them into that fellowship that we enjoy, okay? The tendency is for people to kind of sit on the outside and look in unless somebody invites them in. And so those of us in particular who've been a part of Melanie Park for a long time, I want to urge you to extend that invitation, uh, to ask them to be a part of the fellowship that we are so blessed by and encourage them to enter into that um, and be be blessed as well. Um, one of the things that it just makes me think of is what we talked about last week and how uh, the Bible is full of God's promises. But those promises are only realized to the extent that they are intended when we personally get involved, when we take those steps of faith, when we entrust ourselves to the God who made those promises. And so there is something to be said about the importance of entering in to experience the fullness of what our heart desires. And I think we experience that when we live inside the context of God's design. And I am convinced that part of God's design is for you and I to live in community with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so let's invite people to enter into that fellowship because of the fellowship that we share in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And you're going to see that very clear again this morning. I think as we've looked at the I am statements of Jesus, I'm increasingly convinced that they are a series of invitations of God describing who he is and then inviting us to enter in to the intimacy of that relationship that he came to express and invite us into. And so you're going to see that again this morning. I'm excited about what we're going to look at together. So before we do that, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, I uh, just want to come to you um, as I have shared with uh, this great group of people that you've given me the privilege to uh, live life with, uh, that I'm thankful for this body. I know and believe that your word tells us that you place each person in a specific place for a specific reason to carry out a specific purpose that brings glory to your name. 
And so the fellowship that we share together is not an accident, but it is actually created by you. And so I just want to pray together with these people that we will work hard to protect what you have given us, but not just that, that we would be also mindful of inviting others in to be a part of the blessing of what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to experience the fullness of the promises that you have made for us and to us through relationship with you. And as we look at your word this morning and, and, and examine yet another one of the statements that you make that, that clearly uh, communicates who you are, that we will see within that an invitation to enter into the fullness of what it means to be a child of God. May that be clear to us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. As you're turning there, let me kind of set this up and and let you know that the dialogue that we will look at between Jesus and his disciples takes place at a very important time. Back in chapter 13, which is the same is part of the same dialogue. Jesus explains that, that he gathered his disciples together before the feast of the Passover, knowing that his hour had come to depart from this world to go to his Father. You look at the Gospel of John and, and you would hear Jesus repeatedly say, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And then in John chapter 13 it says, the hour has come. It was at this time that the Scripture tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come forth from God and that He would go back to God, that He rose from supper, girded Himself with a towel, and one by one washed the disciples' feet. A very familiar scene for all of us. And when He finishes, He turns to His disciples and says, In this, I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. I expect, I know this would be true for me, that that each of these men were deeply humbled to have Jesus do for them what they should have done for him. And it was in what I expect to be this moment of silence that Jesus speaks to them something that no one saw coming. Later on in chapter 13, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Jesus had just washed the feet of every single disciple, including the one who would betray him. So now, silence has turned to shock. And then Jesus gives the worst news of all. At least, that's what it had to have appeared to them as the disciples. He says, towards the end of chapter 13, My friends... I will be with you a little while longer, and then I must go. Although you will seek to find me where I am going, you cannot come. So within that chapter, we've had humility, betrayal, and now an unexpected goodbye. And so, needless to say, troubled hearts would have filled this room. And it's within that context that Jesus says what he does in chapter 14, verse 1. Look at that with me. Chapter 14, verse 1. Turning to his disciples, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your heart 
be troubled. That, that statement implies a choice, doesn't it? Jesus says, I know your heart is troubled. And after what we've just looked at, we can understand why. Because the same would be true for you and I. But Jesus goes on to say, it doesn't have to be that way. Believe in God, Jesus says. Believe also in me. Now, I want you to know that that I say these things as a man who daily struggles with fear. I do battle very often with anxiety. And, And so I'm not minimizing the power of these emotions. In fact, I understand their power in a very personal way. But I also know from that same experience that anxiety only becomes debilitating when we become consumed by things that are not true. When we become overwhelmed by things that we cannot control. And I believe that Jesus looks into the faces of His disciples and He understands that reality, that human frailty. And so He says to them, as He would say to us, shift your focus from your circumstances to My provision." Let not your heart be troubled. Choose faith over fear. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he'll go on to explain exactly how that can be done. Look at verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have not told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. (laughs) When you put your trust in me, Jesus says, when, when you put your focus on me and my provision, what happens to you is in my hands. And here's what I have in store, he tells them. I am going away to prepare a place for you. He says that twice in just these Three verses, I am going away to prepare a place for you. And so what that tells me is that if Jesus is committed to preparing a place for those who follow him in faith, then he must be certain of their arrival. And here's why I believe Jesus is certain. You see... There are no massive building projects going on in heaven. I know we've got construction going on in, in, in Lubbock and there's things happening as we expand to accommodate population and all those kinds of things. That same thing is not happening in heaven. I know that some translations of verse 2 talk about mansions and we even sing hymns that speak of the same, but, but I'm convinced that that's not the main point of this verse. In fact, I feel it's not the point at all. Jesus is not going ahead to get heaven ready for our arrival, like we might do if we were expecting a guest in our home. Instead, He's making a way so that our arrival is certain. He's doing something to ensure the security of our salvation. And so when He talks about going away to prepare a place for us, I believe that He has the cross in view. This has nothing to do with our splendid heavenly accommodations. It has everything to do with what Jesus will accomplish in order that we might dwell 
That we might take up residence. That we might live eternally in the presence of God. Jesus is not preparing heaven for us. He is preparing us to be in heaven by way of the cross. Now, at that time, the disciples would not have made that connection. They would not have understood the gravity of what Jesus was saying. And so they would have needed some help. They, they couldn't appreciate that, that chasm of sin that would have separated sinful man from a holy God. And so Jesus helps to lead that conversation, to bring clarity. I believe what he says in verse 4 is actually a setup for the question that Thomas asks in verse 5. Look at that with me. It says, and you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. You know, I think Thomas, in my opinion, gets a bad rap as a doubter. In my opinion, he's a realist. Okay? Remember from last week, he talked about going into Judea, and he said, okay, disciples, I think we should go with Jesus, but we all need to realize that we're going to die. It's a dangerous place. They're seeking our life. That's the ultimate end. He was a realist. And in this situation, I think he asked the question that was on everyone else's mind. He says, Jesus, how do we know the way? If we don't know where you were going, Jesus had just told them previously where I am going. You cannot come. That's a realistic question to me, especially in light of the context. And and actually, that's one of the main reasons that that I look at what Jesus says when he talks about preparing a place and, and believe that that he has the cross in view, because everyone who follows Jesus in faith will be with him. In heaven, they can go where he is going, but no one can go by way of a cross to accomplish what he accomplishes on our behalf. And that's precisely the reason that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Thomas, like many still today, was really asking Jesus for a road map, a a path that might reveal the way that leads to salvation. And in his response, Jesus says, this is not about a path. This is about a person. He wants everyone to understand that he is the bridge over the chasm of sin that separates sinful man from holy God. Jesus is going by way of the cross to prepare a place for us to live eternally in the presence of God. And in the midst of all the troubling things that that are going on around the, the disciples, Jesus wanted them to understand and be strengthened by the assurance of this promised provision. He wants us to know that the security of our salvation is very literally in his hands. He will make a way. Because he's the truth and he's the life. We are secure in Christ because of the truth of who he is. Jesus is not some theory about God. 
He is, in fact, the reality of the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. John says early on in his Gospel, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus Christ, who was in the bosom of the Father, He explained Him. In other words, as Jesus will later clarify, when you see Jesus, you see God. That's why Paul writes to the Colossians and he says these beautiful words when he writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He also is the the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And through Him to reconcile things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And so God did not send a representative who would be like Him. Someone whose character would be similar to His. No, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. In Him, we see the complete true and authentic attribute of God. Because Jesus is God. The Word became flesh. When you see Jesus, you see God. We know that to be true because what we just read in Colossians says that Jesus was in the beginning. That all things have been created through Him and for Him. In Christ, all things hold together and by implication, apart from Christ, Everything falls apart. He is the giver and sustainer of life. And Jesus will tell his disciples in verse 19, Because I live, you will also live. Now I want you to say that that Jesus didn't say, Because I exist, you too will exist. The fact is, we existed before we believed. But we did not have life. Until we believed. You see, your life in Christ introduces you into a new spiritual reality that did not previously exist. You existed before you believed. But you did not have life until you believed. Let me give you some examples of what that looks like in Scripture. Listen to what Paul tells the Corinthians when he writes his first letter to them and he says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But Paul says, We have the mind of Christ. Paul is telling us that that apart from Christ, the things of God seem silly. That his teaching and his truths seem foolish, outdated, irrelevant. 
A natural man cannot understand the mind of God. And, and therefore, his guidance is considered to be folly. But when the Spirit of God indwells you, everything changes. As Paul says, now you have the mind of Christ. And this is what gives you the ability to understand the things of God. His truths are are no longer rejected as foolish, but they are now accepted as life-giving. You no longer see God as this cosmic killjoy, but you understand Him as, as a loving Father. You read things like what you have in your bulletin in the back, and you see what is described about the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that resonates within your very soul because you believe and you have life in His name. That's because Paul goes on to describe in Colossians that, that God has delivered you. From the domain of darkness. says that he has transferred you to the kingdom of his son. In whom you have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. You see, in our existence, apart from Christ, the Bible tells us that we were slaves of corruption. Since we did not have the, the capacity to discern or give value to the truths of God, because we could not understand things that were spiritually appraised, then we were easily persuaded by arrogant words of vanity and just as easily enticed by fleshly desires. We were without God, the Scripture tells us, and with no hope in the world. But when you live in the kingdom of His Son, you no longer work under the control of the desires of the flesh. In fact, in Christ, we experience a completely new reality that did not previously exist. Paul explains it this way when he writes to the Romans. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. And here's the difference. Having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. He goes on to say, sin no longer is master over you. For you're not under law. You are under grace. Your old reality was corruption. Your new reality is grace. Your old reality was slavery to sin. Your new reality is freedom in Christ. You previously existed in death. But now you have been made alive in Christ. Do you see the difference? (laughs) Old things have gone. New things have come. This is a spiritual reality through life in Christ that did not previously exist. And this is all made possible not by following the right path, but instead by being in the right relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus said in verse 3, I am preparing a way so that where I am, there you may also be. You may remember from last week when we talked about the last I am statement where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe 
is what he asks. Again, that question is critically important. And if you think about it in the context of what we've said this morning, it's important because until you believe, you exist. But only after you believe do you have life. The disciples are, are listening to this, and, and Jesus is explaining. I think Philip is, is putting things together and trying to make sense of it. He understands that Jesus says he's going to prepare a place so that those who follow him in faith can be with the Father. And, and so look at what he says in, in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How how do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works of themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I have done, he will do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Philip's listening. He says, I think I get this, Jesus. The goal is to be in God's presence. And so if you'll give me a glimpse of what that looks like, if if you'll show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. I believe Jesus fully expected this conclusion and that question. And in response, he tells the disciples, and listen, this is significantly important for you and I as well. He says this. He says, this is not about how you can get to the Father. This is about how the Father has come to you. This is not about how you can get to the Father. This is about how the Father has come to you. I am in the Father, Jesus says. And the Father is in me. Knowing me is the same as knowing God. Jesus wants us to know, he wants his disciples to understand that the attributes of God are clearly evident in the life of Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in him to the point that the the character of Christ gives us an image of the invisible God. So that when you see Jesus, you see God because Jesus is God. And not only that, as if that wasn't enough, when you hear Jesus speak, you are listening to the words of God. When you and I pick up this book and we read these words, we are reading the words of God. Jesus said, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. The life of Christ gives us an image of the invisible God. His his teaching is the Word of God. And if, if that's not enough, Jesus said, then believe on account of the miracles I've performed. In other words, if it's hard for you to believe what I'm saying, then look and examine and believe on account of the things that I have done. 
And then he goes on to say, knowing that if you believe, greater works than these you shall do. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the disciples, that statement just got my attention. Okay? Because I'm running through the catalog of the miracles of Jesus. Right? I'm remembering the dead raised to life. I'm remembering the lame who walk. The blind who see. I'm remembering five loaves and two fish feeding 5,000 in water that's turned into wine right before my eyes. That's what I'm remembering. And you're telling me that greater things than these? Jesus says, yes. And here's why. The point behind every miracle of Jesus was never, never the miracle itself. Instead, the miracles of Jesus were evidences of the Holy Spirit that revealed a truth about the living God in a way that brings Him glory. And Jesus understands that what He will do on the cross in the way that He will make is that the truths of God will now be revealed in the life of every single believer through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in order that it may accomplish the very same thing that He accomplished on earth. Glory to the Father. This is a new work in accordance with a new covenant in a miracle of such magnitude that humanity has not seen anything like it before this point. The greater work is not the miracles that we do for God. The greater work is the miracle that God does in us. Jesus will tell His disciples later in verse 17, the Spirit of truth which abides with you will be in you. That, my friends, is the greatest miracle of all. His Spirit living in us, so that we might follow Christ's example of walking in God's will in a way that brings glory to His name. Including, including our ability to find hope in the midst of very disturbing and troubling times. By by focusing not on our circumstances, but on His faithful provision. He always has been. And always will be the way, the truth, and the life. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. Now we know as we think about these words that Jesus spoke to His disciples and the dialogue that continues on through the rest of the Gospel and and in the New Testament, that what Jesus had to say undeniably changed their life. And even more than that, it changed the world as we know it. The question is, what difference does that make to you? What difference does that make to you? Because let me remind you, as Jesus reminded His disciples that this is not about following the right path. This is about being in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It is our life in Christ that gives purpose and meaning to our life on earth. It reminds me of a story about a nobleman's son who uh, 
goes to his father with some concerns and complaints. It reminds me of conversations that I've had with people myself and even questions that I've had in my own life. The son turns to his father and he says, Father, what should my ambition be? What should I make of myself? What should I do in life? Well, son, when I was your age, said the nobleman, I wondered about some of these very same questions. But over the years, I've learned something that I I think will be of help to you. I suggest that if you want to find your purpose in life, just become a friend of the king and wait and see what happens. I think that is excellent advice for you and I as well. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Become a friend of the king and then wait and see what happens. Be in a right relationship with Christ and and walk in awareness of the way that he made through the cross. The freedom that you have been given from sin and the resurrection that is found through faith in him. Experience even now what it means to walk in faith as a child of God. Understanding the fullness of the blessing of what it means to have life in Him. Knowing that although you existed before you believed, you did not have life until you believed. So let me encourage you. Live that life. Live that life. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Because when your life is hidden in Christ, you are not the same person you used to be. Old things have gone. New things have come. You have entered into a spiritual reality that did not previously exist. And the more we mature and grow in our faith, the more we we come to understand, as John Piper says, that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. We come to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. We are filled up to all the fullness of God, who is able to do uh, beyond what we could ever ask or imagine, according to the power that works within us, that power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in a way that brings glory to His name. And hear me on this one. When that truth is evident in your life, you become the greatest miracle this world has ever seen. Greater things are represented right here in this room. And not because you're doing everything perfect but because you are being perfected. Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way. Live in the realm of grace, which does not mean that we have a license of sin. We know that. What it does mean is that sin no longer is our master and that by his grace, his power is perfected in our weakness. So get to know the king. Walk in the power of the Spirit and live in a way that brings glory to His name. Be that miracle and make that difference. 
Let me close this in prayer. And then I want to introduce you to some folks. Father, I just thank you for the beauty of your word, the power of your message of hope and faith in you. Father, these are significant life-changing truths when we appraise them through the understanding of the mind of Christ who allows us to appreciate the significance of the truths of God. So, Father, may we walk in that truth and live that life made possible through a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we think about those greater things that you've promised, may we understand the significant power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us so that he who was with them is now in us. And may we live that life to the fullest, beyond what we could ever ask or imagine, in a way that brings glory to your name. That is our prayer and our hope and even our expectation this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.